Welcome to Democratically 2020, the podcast all about the politics, policies, and personalities of the 2020 US election. I'm your host, Karen Robinson. I am delighted to welcome Royfield Brown onto the podcast today. Royfield is a friend of this pod and a host of Emperor of his own army of podcasts, um, including the Mid-Atlantic podcast, which I highly commend to all of you. Um, Thanks for joining me today, Royfield. Uh, Thanks for having me on. I'm thrilled that you could talk to me. Um, I I wanted to get you on in particular because... um, you had some really interesting conversations on your own podcast about Black Lives Matter. And so I wanted to pick up on that conversation and just have a chat about kind of where we are at this point in time and, and this just mark this moment um, because it feels like everything's happening all at once. Um, But before I, you know, we dig into any, any hard questions, just how are you feeling today? I feel how, how is, how's this world for you right now? Um, I have to temper I have to tell you that I'm fundamentally the glass is half full. That's my default position in life. So, yeah. And also being a somewhat of a lapsed Buddhist, I will always say there is um, a silver lining to every cloudy disp- uh, dystopian kind of present. So ultimately I think we're at the pivot point of change mm. historically, economically, societally. I think this is um, a time where, so many people who have marginalized not even marginalized not even understood because marginalized means that it's a conscious effort to put the the fears the concerns of people to one side people just have not understood haven't got it get it and it's a shame it took the death of a man to achieve that and and mass protest but we we have we're at a moment where we can seize the day where right-minded people with their allies, new and old allies can actually build um, a future, which is more just. And it isn't just politically and with our sensibility, but it's also economically, you know, we can out of this whole COVID mess realign economics to help the many, not just the few. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the fascinating thing is it feels like the the country, the, the world, I mean, this is, this is happening all around the world. This conversation has been kicked off by, by the death of George Floyd um, in, in Minneapolis, but it feels like there's this moment where we can start to believe that a, 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 we finally arrived at a moment where change feels, feels possible. I mean, not certain, but possible. Um, yeah, and this is how fast things have moved. Um, defund the police. Um, yes, many people are confused about that and worried. It means, what do you mean? We're going to abolish the police force? What, we're going to have anarchy in the streets of America? But no, um, a conversation which has been had by a small amount of people, which was the over-policing and simultaneously the under-policing, of America and the inappropriate policing of certain situations, mm. we can now actually have that conversation. Let's take police brutality out of it just for now. But um, just before we started recording, we, we were talking about the homeless situation in mm. city that I love, San Francisco. I adore San Francisco. 
massive blight on it is its homeless problem, that and its inaffordable rents. And the two things are inextricably linked. But um, the police are called to move on homeless people, to pick them up off the ground uh, and, and shuffle them off somewhere. Mm. What defund the police means, using that just as one small example, is instead of, let's say, the 10 million dollars which we give the police which in effect they're allocating just to be called out to move on the homeless why don't we allocate that 10 million dollars to um temporary residential care for the homeless and i say 10 million just as i'm picking a a figure randomly but that's what it means because it is really shocking being a brit understanding that when somebody rings 911 literally um the police nearly always turn up regardless of what that situation is. And that's what defund the police means. And, yeah. you know, but saying, um, well, let's reallocate funds to more appropriate departments and let's go and fund them instead doesn't make for a, an appropriate chance at a, at a protest. So we, we live in, this is such an opportunity. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. I've been really fascinated because when you hear a slogan like defund the police, um, you leap to a certain set of assumptions about what it, they think it means, right? When you listen to, when I've been listening to and reading a lot of the people who are, uh, are talking about defunding police, they're actually talking about reinventing the job of policing. Um, and I mean that in the sense of returning it to its original, well, not its original function, because there's a lot of history behind police, especially in America, as not being law enforcement. But the the, the intent of a, a body that is responsible for law enforcement and all the other very long list of things that the police currently do, as you say, mm. dealing with homelessness, dealing with mental health crises, um, even things like taking reports of burglaries and so forth. You don't need a person with a gun showing up at your door who's been trained in military tactics for a lot of the things that we ask the police to do. And that's, when you start to think of it in those terms, it's like, yeah, actually, what if you took exactly the same budget and you can call it whatever name you want to call it. You say, maybe it's, maybe, maybe it's that, you know, you still have the police, but the police has a non, non-violence oriented region, right? Or maybe you've got, you shift it all to social, social care and social work instead, or, you know, there's so much more we can do. Mm. Um, and actually, just totally, totally a really insightful point we just made somebody turning up with a gun yeah right because that is where uh, people of color and poorer americans disproportionately get at the wrong end of that weapon Mm. so the police can turn up for uh non-threat to non-threatening situations but then because they're not trained because american police officers are not trained in de-escalation yeah british police officers are because they turn up to a situation not expecting lethal force Mm. american police officers uh are told to be ready at any at any point at any time so they have a credible reason to be afraid because it is very likely that there's because there are there are guns you know a a british police officer is not going to walk into a house and expect uh the person who's had to walk into to have a firearm it's Mm -hmm. a reasonable assumption to make in america 
And because there is that threat of le uh, lethal force, they're not trained. Well, yes, because there is that presumption, they're not trained in de-escalation. So they walk into situations actually prepared to think the worst of people, especially if they conceive of those people have been other. If that person is poor, it's a bad neighborhood. They're even more on their guard. So then you have the disproportionate amount of police brutality, which is meted out instantly, lethally at people of color and of poor, and of, you know, brown Americans, poorer, even white Americans, because that police officer, the, it's not even the police officer, it's the culture that says, shoot first, ask questions later. So you get 12 year olds shot in the back when they're running away or they're playing, playing with toy guns. Yeah. Um, I'm curious to hear from you. I've, I've been listening quite a lot over the past few weeks. Like, like all of us have, I think I've seen too many videos of police violence and I've seen too much evidence before my eyes of, of what violence looks like. Um, but I'm curious, I've also heard, been hearing a lot of, of black, black people, especially black men, um, talking about their day-to-day -day lived experience of what a policing in America looks like. As somebody who's lived on both sides of the of the Atlantic, how does policing feel different to you in here in the UK versus there? As you say, um, first of all, there's the there's the the fact of you know the force not being armed. Does that make a difference in how you've experienced policing? Hmm. I'll probably say something which will uh, be a, a somewhat of a surprise. And I've said this to a few people, and said this just to somebody yesterday. It took me some time to realize, so I've been fundamentally living in San Francisco, in the Bay Area, sorry, for six months of the year for the last five years. Yeah, five years. So I know it now. It took me two years to realize there isn't the visible police presence that I expected. There was one day when three cop cars, and they weren't rushing anywhere, there's no blue sirens waving. Three cop cars went past me in quite quick succession, and they weren't following each other. And I was like, that doesn't happen every day. Mm. And the reason why I, I had this innate impression that America was going to be much more over-policed is that being British and growing up in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, three quarters of the American police shows you saw were cop shows. Mm. So deep in my psyche, I expect quite literally to see a policeman in every street corner. You actually don't see that. Even in some of the worst neighborhoods in the worst economically in the Bay Area, you actually don't see um, visibly a lot of policemen. As somebody of color, uh, spending a lot of time in San Francisco, I've actually had zero interactions with the police where a crime is being committed and the two or three times I've spoken to policemen um, it was to um, take a picture for me and stuff so I've actually had great um, interactions with law enforcement in the United States um, and a lot of the people that I've had that, that I have in my circle will say exactly the same that probably says a lot to do with the socioeconomic class of people who I'm hanging out with.
if I'm yeah. being being totally honest. So I can't tell you a bad story about US law enforcement. What I can say though is that um, in the United Kingdom, where policemen do not routinely carry guns, but now there are tasers. If you are a person of colour, you're more likely to be tasered. I think it's seven times more likely. Mm -hmm. And you are more likely to have serious injury at the end of that tasering. You're more likely to die if you are a, a black male. So, yes, if you are British and a British male and you're stopped by the police, you don't fear for your life. But you do expect to be assumed to be guilty regardless of the reason why they've pulled you over. We don't expect our interactions to be lethal, but every black British teenager gets the speech from their parents at one point, be careful of the police. When the police pull you over, they will not see you as equal to your white friends, even if you're with them. Mm. You will be assumed to be guilty. Do not give them any excuse to single you out. And did you Every have that black... parents with, of that course. with your parents? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, um, I had it with my son, who's a mixed race, biracial, whatever you want to call him, black, um, in Canada. He's 19. Had it with him about three years ago when he first started driving. You know, um, my first interactions, I'll give you three stories. Two stories. No, three, three stories uh, with me being uh, when the first time ever the police knocked my door was approximately 13, 14. I live on what's called a Barrett estate in the UK, or at least I did then. Um, what that means, it's kind of a relatively new build um, housing for middle income families. So, you know, my parents were proud homeowners in this Barrett estate. And um, we used to play football around the corner on the council estate, which is a social housing bit, with the council kids. At the age of 13, there's no differentiation. We're all just kids playing football. And there was a guy who always used to stand outside of his house smoking. And... And we always thought he was weird. Everybody playing football was white apart from me. I was the one black kid. There's maybe 10 of us. An hour after we finished playing football, I'm, I'm at home. So knock, knock, knock on the door. And uh, two policemen. Can we speak to your mother, please? I'm like, yeah. Mum comes to the door. Said, are you, are you Royfield Brown? Yes. You've been playing football and uh, you'll knock, your ball has been knocking the fence of whatever this guy's name is. My mom says, well, was he playing football by himself? The police officer says, we don't know. He says, well, have you been to the other children's houses he was playing football with? And they said, no. And my mom says, well, I know exactly what this is then. And gave him short shrift mm. and literally closed the door on the policeman. I was the only kid of which this guy had called the police on. And as my mom closed the door, she burst out crying and said, son, 
this is not the reason why I moved to England to bring up my kids so that the police can knock my door. Be so careful, be very careful. And she cried her eyes out. Mm. That's my first instance. Maliciously, the police were called just on me for playing football. Um, second instance, we, we, actually there were three. So I moved from multicultural, multiracial, relatively tolerant Birmingham, you know, say relatively, bearing in mind the story I've just yeah. told you. Everywhere's got its problems, but yeah. Yeah. To Worthing, which is a, a city on the town, sorry, on the south coast of England, which is uh, humorously called one of the dead centres of England, i.e. there's lots of old, old people live there. Mm. So um, it's 99% white and pretty elderly. Um, I moved there for college. Within the first month, or maybe it's about the first five weeks, six weeks, I'm stopped by the police three times. Mm. One time, I'm about 19. One time at 11 o'clock at night, walking home. Another time is late walking home. The third time was three was nine o'clock in the morning on the way to college, which was this, the, which was the scariest. The first time they stopped me, they go, "Where, where are you going?" I'm, like, I'm going home. I'm so scared. Uh, what's your name? Rufal Brown. I, I, I've never been stopped by the police before, right? I, I, if they've asked me what my inside leg measurement was, I'd have told yeah. them. Right. And what did you think? What did you think they were stopping you for? What What was your? Well, this is it. I, yeah. Because just because I come wrapped up in black skin doesn't yeah. mean I'm I'm thinking about it all the time. Yeah. I'm just walking home, and the police, who you trust, have stopped me. So I'm telling them everything they want to know, right? Yeah. And all you know, and also then it kicks into your brain after a bit. Oh, wait on a minute. I'm black, and these are the police. I'm a I'm a I'm a black male. Anyway, so that's the first interaction. The second interaction, I'm a bit like, what is going on? I'm 19. I've never been stopped by the police. And within uh, a month, I've been stopped twice. The third time, I didn't even stop as they pulled over. And they said, come on, tell us where you're going. I said, I don't think I have to tell you where I'm going. It's nine o'clock in the morning. This is the scary thing. And they said, come on, just tell us where you're going. I said, no. And they said, look, we know who you are. We know you're going to college. We know your name's Rory. And then they drove off at nine o'clock in the morning. What? Yeah. And then the third instance um, we, myself and my cousin, and my cousin is a solicitor, also comes wrapped up in black skin. We were driving somewhere in South London. And he had three of his, he had three small kids in the back of the car. He wasn't driving, wasn't speeding or anything, but he had a nice car. He's hmm. a solicitor. Blue, and it's, it's a Sunday afternoon. It's about, and it's a bright sunny day. It's about four o'clock in the afternoon. Blue flashing lights, policeman pulled over. My cousin went ballistic. Right. And I say to him, calm down. No, the effing police. I'm here I am with my kids and whatever. I said, Well, it's not a good example. You're setting them then, is it? Whatever. That policeman came over and in effect I had to pander. 
I had to pander to every non-stereotype which he had of black people. I was not right. excited. You had to perform. I wasn't angry. I was calm. My diction was clear and whatever. And my cousin was literally just seething because he, he gets stopped all the time because of his nice car. Mm. You know, and that policeman says, I was just checking. And I says, we've got our children in the back of the car, officer. And I'm literally, and I'm like, holding my, my, my cousin down from just like exploding to give him any, any excuse and my cousin I said he's a solicitor says do you know how many times I get stopped or whatever but yeah mm. I was whiter than white you know I couldn't change the color of my skin but my language I could moderate and be and be calm and it didn't matter the rights or the wrongs of the whole situation I, I was not going to give him a, any excuse so you know have I been beaten up by the police? Have I been um, handcuffed by them? No. But every black person, either side of the Atlantic, has their police stories. All of us. All of us. We do not expect them to be neutral. We do not expect them to protect and to serve us. I think that that for me is the key, is this protect and serve is the police motto that so often gets used and and especially lately i just keep thinking protect who serve who um because as somebody who's been relatively privileged to feel that i could always call the police or interact with the police and mm. trust that they would take my statements at face value right for all sorts of reasons all sorts of privilege that i enjoy white privilege even to some extent being female rather than male and um you know etc but it just feels it feels like taxpayer money goes to pay the salaries of these men and women. And who are they protecting? Is it me? Because if it's me, they can stop because it's not helping. Who are they protecting and who are they serving? Where, is this, where does service come into this? Because they create, there's an adversarial relationship that seems to exist in their minds between themselves and a lot of the people they're supposed to protect and serve. Right. And I'm not sure you can easily just make that go away. I, I, think, it's, I think it's easier than, than people think to go away. The police primarily are there to protect middle-class property owners. Mm. And in the United Kingdom, that's the reason why they were set up. Yeah. So it... You know, it was to protect middle class property owners and everything about the police is kind of geared around that. I, I forget exactly who said this. It could be Jamel Bowie, but it was some uh, current black thinker. But he said, and I, and I went, you know what, you, you have a point there. This I, this I think this is around about the ki killing of Philando Castile, I mm. think. But he said, where's the effect of when an officer goes into training? He says, he said, most policemen and women go into the police force because they want to do good. Yeah. They do. Yeah, 100%. They, they genuinely but, believe in service. Yeah. Not all. Some of them want to crack yeah. heads, but the right. vast majority want to do good. Right. Right. And he says, then you go into the police force and then you are told that some areas are dangerous because those people there are bad. You're not told there's socioeconomic reasons why um, they're poorer and might live their lives in a different way. You're told 
these people are different, they are bad. So the attitude of a policeman walking into certain neighborhoods is akin to a soldier on, on patrol. Be careful, beware. These people aren't like you. These are the other people. So when they go in with that attitude, then is it any wonder that they don't, that they, that they don't act with uh, equanimity mm. when they go into the good neighborhoods where people are paying their taxes to, to pay their wages? These people aren't doing that. They're, they're bad. They made bad choices beware and he says these police officers in big cities are always told there's that there's that bad neighborhood over there you know beware beware and they act accordingly mm. and because there is the presumption of of weapons they can't afford to think when it was put in that way i'm not going to say i had sympathy for for policemen but i understood i understood much more right if the institution is telling you these people in these areas are bad you act in a different way you know it, it, it would it would make sense the institution kind of takes over and then that's before then you start to look at uh, the kind of band of brothers um, mm. attitude that goes on that when you know an officer has done bad well of course you can't rat him out because it's the worst thing you can do etc then you've got the police unions protecting you then you've got public prosecutors that won't um, throw the book at bad policemen because the police unions are funding their campaigns there's all this other stuff layered on top yeah I think the police unions, um, so there are, there are all sorts of things structurally that work, that have been put in place, that are constructed to, to, to make the system work badly in this particular respect. One of which is that the, the actions of the police unions, which have done a lot of work to make it very, very difficult to get officers who are proven to be performing badly off the force. And quite a lot, not all, but quite a lot of the incidents that we've seen have been officers who have previous complaints against them for violence, mm -hmm. who have a long records of this. It's incredibly difficult to fire a police officer because of the contracts that have been negotiated by, by these police unions. And in a lot of cases, even officers who do get fired get rehired again because the system is set up such their records can be expunged. They're not allowed to share data between forces. We don't we even when we know somebody's bad at their job we can't mm. make we can't stop them from continuing to do harm within their community in the way the systems work so it seems like there's a lot of low-hanging fruit that that should be fixable but how do you break that so that sort of power structure that's the question well there's been an implicit let's turn a blind eye by by politicians of both stripes mm. you know i want to say uh, right of center i want to say uh, in america republicans but it's yeah. both it's both stripes. sides yeah it's totally both sides um and the irony is is that americans american institutions dislike unions mm. full stop and americans at least if you believe american media people complain about teaching unions they never complain hmm. middle america never complains about police no uh, so it's, it's the one never. union that has universal universal support from both sides of the political aisle um, with very few exceptions absolutely but i think that's gone now 
So hence what I was saying earlier on, we have to seize the moment because it's very easy, you know, to explain this to, to British people where we don't have public prosecutors, which you vote for, you know, we, do, we don't have that office. Um, but quite simply, because Americans have elections for literally everything, which is a way of just gumming up the system. Initially, I thought this was wonderful. What a wonderful democracy. But when you actually sit down and realize how it works, it's all these elections so that people yeah. have constantly running and got their hands out and yeah. begging bowl asking for money as opposed to actually getting anything done. So it, that there is a very strong appeal that somebody running to be the public prosecutor can say that I'm going to be tough on crime never going to be tough on the causes of crime. I'm going to be tough on crime. And then of course the police unions then um, fund them. Cause I'm, you know, I'm going to give the police, give the police uh, um, another 3% annual hike. Mm. You know, I've got a nice little house in a nice little neighborhood. That's, that's, that's manner to my ears. That, that's, that's, that's what I want to hear. Mm. There's going to be, I'm going to be safer, but actually um, what people don't realize is is that the law is being disproportionately um, levied at different citizens um, that for the same crimes, white people and black people have different judicial outcomes mm. for the same crimes. If you're black or brown, you're going to be in prison longer. And also what you're doing is making the police more remote by militarizing them, by giving them more and more stuff, by giving them... Um, you know, all this low, it's not even low grade military gear. All it's, this it's actual military. military. A lot of them yeah. it is ex-military yeah. gear. Yeah, because the military go, wait on, there's, there's a new model of this yeah. thing. So instead of just throwing it all in the dustbin, we'll give it to the police. You're actually making the police much more remote, much more hostile, much more unaccountable. unaccountable. And I think people are, are, are realizing this, you know, that... This isn't the, as we would say in, in England, the Bobby on the beat, where mm. you, you recognize this person and they walk along and, you know, they tip their hat to you and say, hello, sir, hello, ma'am, um, have a nice day and walk on. You know, these are people that, sorry, yes, go on. Yeah, no, I just, I, I think that's really interesting because it's one of the things that I feel has been really revealing in the police management of these protests is it's been really obvious they have the wrong equipment and the wrong skills to do the job of keeping the peace and i think they couldn't have made it more obvious um which is one of the reasons why i think you've seen public attitudes shift so quickly because when you've got a peaceful group of protesters and a group of police standing in front of them and it's like they lack the imagination and the only thing they can think of to do is fire rubber bullets and tear gas at that crowd you have so, to look so, at that and think that's that's not a good way to do this job it's just just doesn't work <laughs> to, to be fair to be fair i was really struck at the end of the first week with the amount of videos i was seeing of police sheriffs taking off their equipment and um marching with the protesters and there's one famous one um famous incident in Michigan I forget where in the middle of Michigan somewhere I'm going to say Ann Arbor but it's somewhere in Michigan and police the policemen police turned up in all of their riot gear and this is a totally peaceful demonstration vocal but it was police it was totally peaceful 
and the sheriff basically said guys take off your equipment and they took took it up took them off and he was hugged by the demonstrators and he says black lives do matter and he says come on let's go protest together and i went yeah. marching down the road <laughs> but, you know if only um more police departments had yeah. that sense of de-escalation and also to realize that um they are part of the community too yeah i think i think that's the thing though because i would i would even in that instance which you know it's lovely you know it's great fantastic take off your riot gear and march with us but i would actually say wouldn't smart policing tactics start without the riot gear and then put it on if they need it if you're showing up, do you know what I mean? It's like, where are you starting? What's your starting assumption going into a situation? But exactly. And, and that's kind of what I was saying before, right? Let's say, let's just say, and you interest and you, for me, interestingly, at one point said, um, you have white privilege. And when it comes to the police, there is a female privilege mm. because um, the police do not see you as the same imminent threat as if you were a male. Yeah, they're less scared of okay? me. Exactly, exactly, right? So let's just say if these were mass protests about an injustice done to um, a middle-class, middle-American white woman, let's just say, right? And, the, and there were women's marches... Mm -hmm. everywhere in america the yep. police would not be turning up policing in riot gear. Policing, well we did have that we had the women's march right exactly and they didn't turn up in riot gear. police showed up very respectfully they assumed it would be peaceful and it was peaceful right no okay i understand it's more tense when the protest is against you right i get that mm -hmm. but actually the protest isn't even against you if you're a peaceful cop right so i think there's this like it's what i was saying earlier there's this adversarial relationship that police think they have with at least some of the people that they serve that is not necessary that, that you know it, it would be better for them as you know as you're saying these cops tried to do in michigan if they would get on the other side of that and everybody would agree that the people who do this job badly are harmful but and again i don't be an apologist for the police but as i said when i heard the the black thinker talk about the process mm. uh the, the the mental process that police officers go through and the reason why they then come to the outcomes that i did i went hmm, that makes sense mm. but also the police are only doing society's will yeah fundamentally they might be overdoing it over egging the pudding so to speak as we say in england but these attitudes don't come from nowhere mm. right so ultimately we can blame the police and i think it's good for us to do that right now because actually what but actually what they are is made manifest society's prejudice uh, society's brutality society's marginalization and we can see it yeah. we can actually see it you know and we have a moment where we can say the institution needs to change but as part of that we need to look at the deeper systemic uh, reasons why this has actually happened. And some of it is institutional in terms of the process or the process for, for American listeners uh, <laughs> process. Of, 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 <laughs> of how um, 
politics gets done and, and, and accountability gets missed in America, yeah. you know, and then a lot of it is also to do with race and then class. There's a massive overlap between, between yeah. the two because poor white Americans get shot disproportionately as well. They, they, they do. It's just that this is what is one of the races where, where black people win. You know, we, we're winning that race. But poor yeah. white Americans disproportionately get uh, shot too. I, I, speaking about the burden that is born, I think one of the things I've also been very much sort of anxious about or mindful of or thinking about is in so many aspects of life, we put more burden on black Americans. You know, as you say, they're, they're more likely to be victims of violence. They're, um, you know, they, they, there are all sorts of troubles. And one of the particular burdens that black Americans, uh, black Americans have been bearing recently is that they're more likely to be dying of COVID. Mm -hmm. And in the middle of what is still a raging epidemic, um, all of this started happening. We've got protests out there. We've got people out there on the street, basically protesting for their own lives and for their own futures. And yet it feels to me like we've put a burden on people that again, we already have massively higher rates of COVID infection and death amongst the black community. Now, millions of people are out there on the street in, in a beautiful way, peacefully demanding the rights that they should have been granted in the first instance. Um, but in so doing, are they therefore further putting their health at risk? I just, it feels like there's this constant cycle of extra burden. Um, there must be some way around that. And I'm not quite sure what to do as a, you know, as a, as a person, um, a person, you know, who has been sheltering in place through, through the, throughout this virus to try and keep myself from getting infected. You have that judgment of, do I go down to the protests? We had protests in, in London. And I didn't know how to make that judgment because on the one hand, I want to be there. I want to be in that crowd. I want to be with people showing my support and taking any action that I can. On the other hand, I don't want to be a nexus of infection for people. And it just, it just felt very frustrating. Like what's the, what's the right way through? How do we, how do we ask people to, you know, fight for their lives in every aspect? I found it very disheartening. Sorry, I'm just I ranting, but no 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 I, I i think it's totally a fair and understandable uh quandary uh, to be in it's not by accident that the these mass protests have happened mm -hmm. during or maybe to the end of the first covid um, yeah. emergency it's not I think that's the accident. way to say it the first because because we'll probably have yeah. more you know people were pent up they were bored yeah and you know most of us didn't have work to distract us from social media videos of a cop kneeling on someone's neck so i think that's a a key part of this the only thing that i would say is that um, the protest that i went to in birmingham in england yeah i would say let's say there were ten thousand people there um, at Centenary Square. The majority of people were wearing masks. Mm -hmm. um, I bought my first mask for the, for the whole family, masks, uh, plural, for the whole family um, that day because we were going, going down. Yeah. I would say easily 70, 75, possibly even 80% of people were wearing masks. So people were pretty responsible. Yeah. They were. 
They were thinking was about it, it. Was it absolutely everybody? No, but the vast majority. It wasn't even 50-50. Yeah. You know, so people have been uh, careful. Um, yeah. Though another one of these small ironies is that um, we're now saying to young black men, you can wear a mask in public. Mm. You know, to, 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 some, to some sections of, of, of society, that's even more scary. Yeah. We can't even see them now, you know, so. I mean, that's another example, isn't it? You know, you can yeah. say to, you can say to the population at large, everyone should wear a mask. But when a black man puts a mask on his face, he's putting himself mm. at further risk in another way. It's just, yeah, yeah every which way you cut it. But, yeah. mm. Roy, we've talked about some things, some possible policy solutions to help address this. Um, we talked about, you know, almost kind of reinventing which aspects of, of the world policing tackles and, and taking some of the authority away. We've talked about arming, de-arming, we've talked about militarization. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of a lot of work that's been done, kind of research that says the most effective thing that you can do for policing isn't training or, um, you know, um, community policing, which is a big idea that, that people tried in a lot of places, but it's actually just substantively changing use of force rules. And um, I'm still surprised that there are, there are quite a lot of police forces in the, in the country that don't have a rule against the type of chokehold that killed George Floyd. Um, and so again, it feels like there's a lot of low-hanging fruit there that 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 we could that we could follow. Do you have kind of policy solutions in mind that you think would make a big difference? You know, what? I don't, and I know that uh, Pelosi is trying to push through uh, that bill yeah. um, to outlaw outlaw chokeholds. And one of the shock, one of the many shocking things about seeing the police reaction to the largely peaceful demonstrators, right? Definitely in the in the second week, they've all been peaceful, yeah. and even in the first week where there was some violence, it's still overwhelming. We're still, yeah, overwhelmingly, right? Was the fact that you saw policemen, on more than one instance, have their knee on someone's neck as they was arresting them? Yeah. But at least in one of those instances, it, the fellow policeman knocked his leg away yeah. and stuff. So, but I don't know. For me, when someone's in a chokehold, that isn't the first point of contact with uh, that potent, with that actual perpetrator, with the person you, you, you're arresting. There's still a whole load of processes that you go to processes uh, for the, our transatlantic uh, podcast that you go to before you put somebody in a chokehold. So to ban the chokehold, you could, it, an unintended consequence could be more lethal force faster. Mm. Could be. So I would say, no, um, the problem is well before well before you get to the chokehold i think the chokehold thing is symbolic and to show that congress is got its finger on the pulse of the nation it's taken the nation's temperature and says whoa we need to we need to do something quickly and get it passed um because people are demanding for change mm -hmm. but actually it, it's pre the chokehold. It's the attitude of the police when they go to those more impoverished neighborhoods. It's the attitude to the police that under police, 
poor neighbourhoods, i.e. if a crime is committed, you're less likely to get it solved. But then they yeah. over-police on minor things like traffic violations because actually the fines that come fund the police service. Yeah. You know, so it's within their interest to, to slap fines on... Uh, on cars and you know and and for people for quite minor things which then criminalizes uh poor uh, communities which then means it's harder for them not only to pay for them because they have they're in financial straits anyway but harder to get jobs because yeah. then the police then hoover them up because they've got three or four unpaid fines or whatever and they find themselves uh, you know in jail it just goes on and on and on so it it's more fundamental than the, than the chokehold thing, I think. Yeah. Much more fundamental. Yeah. I mean, I think chokeholds are, are one problem of which there are many, but I think in the whole category of use of force. I mean, another thing that, that I think about a lot is, um, you know, one of the things that they talk about in terms of use of force reform is, is making sure that people, even police just, I, that they identify themselves and give a warning before they use their firearm. Um, I think a lot about Breonna Taylor, who... Um, she was. Uh, she died shortly before George Floyd, and people don't talk about her as much. But the police came into her home in the early hours of the morning on a no-knock warrant. It didn't tell them who who she was with their firearms drawn, and she got in the middle of a firefight. I mean, how would you react if someone woke you up in the middle of the night? So it's you know just things like that that you know. Again, it feels like the police are operating as soldiers rather than as law enforcement mm. and that's it's again it's a change of change of assumption Are, is this a well, battlefield or is this a, is this a home well it, it, it's what i said about that really uh quite perceptive um african-american pundit yeah he says they go the police are going into places where people are other and mm. he says it's the equivalent to having ptsd and you yourself have said it so they're not policing yeah you know if the police were about to do a drugs raid in Beverly Hills, you know, there's a no-knock warrant, right? I guarantee you, before they pull their weapons, they would have identified themselves as the police. When they kicked the door off, it would have says, police, LAPD, blah, blah, blah. But there's no accountability. There's been no consequence for them to act in such a yeah. way in poorer neighbourhoods, in neighbourhoods where, where people of colour reside, because there isn't the the political accountability yeah and it does you know, to me it does them a disservice as well because as you say most people go into this job wanting to do a good thing for their community there are some bad people who just want to shoot guns and and kick ass yeah. but most people go into it because they believe they can help their community in this way and we don't show them how we don't give them the right rules and the right culture and the right framework to do the job in the way that they would have wanted to do it so, you know, it isn't just, you know, it doesn't need to be police against the people. It, it, it should be that we're all on the same side here. Um, mm. But you, you do need to break the culture. It's, uh, there, there is a problem. I, I, I've seen some of these police unions and some of the things that they've been saying, I find really troubling. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, this statutory immunity has to go. The mm. power of the police unions has to go. And act like, how, you're, how many how many billions dollars a year does the NYPD get? I remember hearing the figure. I was staggered. Yeah. We're not on about like one billion. It was like fifteen billion dollars. It was a, a humongous figure, a yeah. humongous figure of, of of money. Where, as police, 
budgets are going up, crime across the United States is going down. Mm-hmm. Yep. In any other civic department, you'd be lowering that budget. You would. Sure. Of Cause, course. Because the whole the whole point of them is is is, is going down. Crime <laughs> rates everywhere yeah. in the United States. If you had States fewer kids, down. you'd reduce the education budget, right? There you go. There you go. <laughs> but still to say we're going to be tough on crime, hmm. right, is such a great election rally yeah. uh, cause in local politics and in national politics. Well, and the other thing is that more police doesn't necessarily mean genuinely tough on crime because I was shocked in this whole, you know, in, in all the reading and research I've been doing recently is to learn how how poor the police are at solving some of the most violent crimes for which they exist right murder Mm -hmm. murder clearance rates rape clearance rates assault clearance rates they're very low um so all the time they're spending you know knocking on the doors of unarmed citizens (laughs) like go go off and do some detective work right find out who committed some of these murders and i think you said it very well earlier a lot of the same neighborhoods that are being over-policed are also being under-policed in that crime committed against the citizens is not taken as seriously as it deserves and it's not it's not prosecuted in a professional manner. Um, and, and that, you know, ironically, with a reduction in police budgets, we might solve more crime because we'd redirect the police towards doing the thing that they're exactly. actually here for. Exactly, exactly. Uh, let's not have them um, moving on homeless people uh, as an example. Um, let's have, you know, proper agencies that can deal with the mental health issues that those yeah. people are going through and the housing issues and not have the police worried about them. And, and I just had a look, $5.9 billion is the budget of the NYPD yeah. um, in, New, in New York. So yeah. it, I, I said it was like 14, but it's 5.9, which still... It's a lot of money. That, that, that's a lot of money in anyone's book, especially yeah. when New York has record low crime rate. So what are they doing with this money? Yeah. Well, they're buying tanks. <laughs> they're, they're, literally, they're buying military equipment. I think that's another thing, just a really simple thing. The military needs to stop selling its equipment to the police forces because they're not, they're not for the same purpose. <laughs> and I think, you know, just because they well, want to play listen, with the, toy, I, the big toys... Uh, <laughs> Uh, Karen, I, I think you might be wrong. I think in Donald Trump's mind, it's all the same thing. All he the will same. De- he will deploy um, the military to defend the Lincoln Monument. He will <laughs> deploy the police to be at Lafayette Park with the Park Police, with the Secret Service, with um, the Corrections Riot Police. To him, it's all the same. Yeah, I think, and I say this from the bottom of my heart, Rockfield, I do not want to live in Donald Trump's mind. (laughs) That is not a place I want to spend any time. (laughs) Unfortunately, we've all been there for the last uh, three and a half years. We're living in a fever dream that Donald Trump had after he ate too many tacos. (laughs) Absolutely. Rockfield, shall we we quickly play the gut check game? Yes, go. Right. So I have here in front of me... um, some some things overheard or seen um, in the world this week or last couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just going to pull one out. These are quotes or sayings or ideas that I've heard. Um, one, this is uh, oh, this is a Trump tweet. <laughs> After yeah. having just said, I don't want to live in Donald Trump's mind, but he just tweeted two, three words: "Law and order!" Exclamation mark. 
What do we think about that? What does that even mean? What, what Apart from he being says, a TV show. I, I am your president of law and order. Well, he's, he's aping uh, Nixon, isn't he? Mm. He thinks that he can go back to 1968 when um, America was, was literally burning then. Yeah. And um, white America um, was shocked when it saw dogs biting uh, the legs of peaceful black protesters. And it gave wind to um, LBJ and his um, moves, uh, though was uh, pushed along for, you know, civil rights and stuff. So have civil rights legislation, voting yeah. rights legislation. Um, white America then ran out of patience by 1968 when they just saw these weren't protests of... Um, you know, civil rights, this was just criminality and uh, Nixon rode to power by saying, I'm going to restore law and order. So it's uh, Trump trying to yeah. ape that, isn't it? It's, it's, I think you put it really, really well because fundamentally Trump is making a bet that this is 1968 and he can ride white bash backlash. There is some reason to believe that the public attitude, at least, or the public response might be more 1963 and that because um, what you've seen is a huge rise in support for the Black Lives Matter movement um, by something like a 30 point margin. People now say that they support the goals of the movement and that, you know, that and that they they believe in it. Um, and, and Nixon had, you know, Nixon was coming at a time when people were, as you say, very, very fed up with uh, the chaos in the streets. And Nixon was not the incumbent president at that time. That's the other thing. Yeah. Um, it's, I wonder if he really will be able to benefit from calling for law and order when he's the guy who's in charge now and there's chaos. <laughs> I mean, exactly. And not in his inauguration dude. speech, he said, American, this American carnage stops right here, yeah. right now. And, and three and a half years later, he's been the herald of, e of carnage. Yeah. Um, the other thing is as well, he needs to be really be careful because the nfl mm. uh, the the good um leaders the corporate leaders of the nfl which aren't known for their radical politics have basically said they're wrong with colin kaepernick so he is very much out of step with um many many branches of corporate america and and i would say with the beating heart of america oh my i'm so sorry about that. i hope you're gonna to have to edit this thing <laughs> right. I'll, I'll go back a step um yeah with the beating heart of america because if even the nfl are saying we were wrong colin kaepernick was peacefully protesting protesting um you know he's out on a yeah. limb yeah, I mean, Colin Kaepernick, he's been done wrong. I mean, let's be real. Um, you know, he was trying to peacefully um, and calmly and respectfully raise this issue. And he got shouted down by his own league and kicked off his team. And now, you know, just a few years later, suddenly it's, oh, yeah, right. I, yeah. I see what you Every, meant. Everyone can see he was yeah. absolutely right. He was 100% right. Respectful calm thoughtful and you know if we'd listened to him then we might not be quite so badly off now but hey ho here we are <laughs> um another one oh here's here's something that uh really struck me today um the new address of the white house 1600 black lives matter plaza 
<laughs> True. Th- that is so clever. Though, isn't, isn't that it? amazing? It's so, it's so clever. And it's one of those things where you just, you know, you slap your forehead and you just go, God, I wish I'd have thought of that. Right. You know, it's just a great way. It shows you the mental adroitness of the mayor of, of, of DC. Yeah. Um, how to make a massive statement, uh, you know, and just, just yeah, stunning. You go, so they painted uh, the, 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 you know, the plaza and it says Black Lives Matter. You go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But when you saw those workmen actually changing the sign, yeah. the street sign, and it, you go, yeah. You know, it was that, that is, that, yeah, that, that is utterly amazing. I mean, I, I, I love everything about it. Um, I love, one of the things I love about it though is, is I, I think a lot, and we talk a lot about in this podcast, just using the power that you have, not just, not just taking to the streets, but like where you have power, put it to use so that people can see that their votes matter. And I think it's so mm-hmm. important. And that's one thing that's happening here is, you know, the, the mayor of DC is disempowered in many ways. The federal government I mean, I'm a DC voter, so I feel really strongly about it, but the federal government um, imposes its will on the people of DC in many very unfair um, ways. But if you have political power and if you have institutional power, then go ahead and use it when you can. And and this was just a, you know, one small but meaningful way in which she could, she could actually make her voice heard and on behalf of her constituents. So yeah, good honor. You should be the 51st state, by the way. 100%. Although I'd, I'd be happy to be 51 and two with Puerto Rico at the same time. Um, you add up all the people that we don't give a vote and we don't give representation in Congress and you, you look at the color of their skin and how they vote and you have to understand that, you know, it's not coincidental that that, that DC and Puerto Rico are not, uh, not represented in Congress. But, you know, it's just a personal, personal thing of mine. Every time I vote, <laughs> it bugs me. I, but I don't... This is one thing which you're going to have to explain to me before you go on to your, your last gut check. Why have the Democratic Party not been more vociferous about statehood for DC? This should have been like, it just needs to happen. Not even a talking yeah. point, like this is going to happen. I, I will even give um, Republicans the benefit of the doubt when it, when it comes to um, Puerto Rico. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt, right? Culturally, yeah. it is different. People speak Spanish and blah, 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 blah. And it has a different history. But like Washington, D.C., there is no excuse. Yeah. It has more population than many states. Yeah. It, you know, it, it, but so I think, I think that the short answer is Democrats let DC go because we have Stockholm syndrome. We just, we just know that the, the, that Republicans won't let stuff happen. And, uh, but it was interesting. I heard a, an Obama administration person, I think it might've been one of the pod save America guys one time. And he was just saying to himself, we, we talked about DC statehood. We believed in DC statehood. We got into the white house and I don't remember any other conversation about it. It wasn't like we decided not to pursue it. It just, it never came up. And he's like, what were we thinking? How did that happen? Um, I'm, I'm hopeful that we won't make those kinds of mistakes anymore. We need to find and use political power wherever we can, because the other side is not shy about using whatever advantage they can find. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. 
you know, voter suppression, gerrymandering, you know, the, the Republicans know, and we've heard, um, goodness, uh, the guy who um, was the chief architect of the gerrymandering from 2010 onwards, you know, there's recordings, you can hear him and he says, our voting base is declining, so we need to redraw the map to our yeah. advantage. This is it's not conspiracy theories, and like he says it, yeah. that's the reason why we've drawn up the maps, yeah. you know, and this is how you push them through in all the state legislators. This is how you do it. Yeah. Like, so they're doing it. Yeah. And like at least And the, Mitch McConnell, he's least, not he's not sorry about using his power. Like he doesn't no, apologize no, no. for it. He doesn't no. even bother to explain it. He just does it. No, he is the arch politician. It's yeah. a case about political power and how can I maintain it. And the Democrats, I just don't get it. I just don't get it. Statehood for DC, why is it that what? Um one million people live in District of Columbia, or seven hundred fifty thousand. So it's about seven hundred fifty thousand. It was five hundred thousand yeah. ten years ago, fifteen years ago. It's probably about yeah, seven fifty now. Yeah. Um, how the hell do they not have two senators there when the Dakotas have four? Right. Oh, the don't population get me started. <laughs> there shouldn't even be two Dakotas. I mean, come on, bunch of empty land doesn't get a vote. <laughs> Leave it alone. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I couldn't agree more, but then I'm a little biased on that one, but, uh, you know. Right. Um, okay, so I'm going to pick la one last one. Oh, okay. So here's this one. Um, we talked about this a little bit earlier. This is a quote from Mike O'Meara, who's the NYPD union leader, gave a fiery speech about how unfairly he's treated. And he says, stop treating us like animals and thugs and start treating us with some respect. Well, there's my answer. <laughs> the, 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 the silence. Um, Just how to completely misread the situation. Out of, there are two uh, branches. There's probably more, but there's two that I can think of right now of the American state, which have been over-resourced, over-lionized, pampered, uh, and been able just to do their own thing. It's the American military and the police force. And chickens have come home to roost for the police force. They've acted as if to say that they fundamentally are accountable to nobody. And chickens have come home to roost. And it's, and it's been a long time coming. And this would not have happened if it wasn't for uh, digital technology and the fact that uh, we all are now citizen reporters um, and we could see instance after instance of the police um, disregarding the civil rights of the people they're there to protect. So, yeah, you know, I it, mean, it, it, come on, yeah, <laughs> come on, dude. <laughs> I mean, I saw, I read that quote, and I, I, I saw him give the speech. And my first reaction was, he said, stop treating us like thugs. And my first gut reaction was, stop acting like it. We'll stop treating you like it, right? Because mm -hmm. I've seen literally hundreds of videos of the police enacting violence against people this week, right? Just literally hundreds of it. And if any other group of people were behaving in that way, thug would be too kind of word for them, mm. right? It's just to give the police a slight bit of credit 
why is it that we accept that when soldiers come back from battle, they can have PTSD? We accept that. 30 years ago, it wasn't accepted. Yeah. Or, or at least after the end of the First World War, when all their shoulders came back, shell-shocked, um, couldn't think straight, they'd seen horrors, yeah. whatever. It was a case of just, you know, shape yourself up, sort yourself out. Yeah. 30 years ago, after the first Gulf Wars, when I really heard of PTSD and that American combat soldiers suffer from it, rates of domestic abuse for serving members of the military and ex-military are much higher than the general population. It's also higher for police yep. officers. So if that is so if we can accept that people doing an arduous job, not all policing is arduous, not all of it is life-threatening, but some of it is. You yep. know, there is a needed agency. No one's saying abolish the police right why can we not then look at it and say you know what they might act with disproportionate force they might not always think and do the right thing at the right time and some you know and quite simply they do the wrong thing at the wrong time not all the time but you know it has been known to happen so if we can just treat the police like human beings i think we'll end up with a better police force I mean, I think that's that's right, but I would also I completely agree with you about the PTSD point. And as I said earlier, I think that, you know, police have genuinely plenty of good reason to fear for their lives because they go into situations where they must expect that people will be armed. Um, sometimes their fears are irrational, but they're still real fears that they feel. Um, but I guess I would come back to, you know, another uh, uh, thinking about the kind of realm of mental health. I would think about, you know, the theory in, in addiction recovery, right? That says the first step to getting help is admitting that you have a problem. Mm. And I, I feel like the police, certainly the NYPD, apparently, <laughs> the police union, I feel like they need to do a better job of coming to terms with accepting that there is a problem. Right. And I, I totally accept that in many cases we're talking about a small fraction of the force, but you put on the same uniform. Right. And I think the whole point of wearing a uniform is that people can expect the same treatment, the same behavior from everybody wearing that uniform. That's why it's uniform. Right. It's same. Mm. And the expression is, you know, people always talk about, oh, it's just a few bad apples. But but the expression is the bad apple spoils the barrel, right? The, the contamination Absolutely. of having, you know, one bad cop m lessens the trust and respect for the entire institution. It makes it difficult for people. Sorry, I'm just going on, but, it, but I think, you know, we can, we can acknowledge that police do a, a very difficult and important job. And because they do an indifficult and important job and because they genuinely must be in fear for their lives much of the time, they need to do more they need to like we need to expect they need to expect more for themselves to do this job properly and the, the other thing as well is that it's lowering public trust yes because let's say two let's say two percent of all cops are, are truly bad yeah the fact that the institution covers that up right yeah. is lowering public trust so it's within that institution's uh, benefit to get rid of the 2%. Yeah. 
and actually to do it publicly because they'll have yeah. a, a better police force. You'll have there has to be higher standards of ethics. Exactly, exactly. Them hiding it for years and shuffle, you know, moving that beat officer who, you know, just to, you know, to death duty isn't good enough. Or as, as you said, you know, saying, okay, we're going to sack you, but then the, the police department two counties away um, employs him. It, that stuff can't go on anymore. It can't yeah. go on anymore. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, I think even if it's like, let's take the 2% figure, right? Hmm. If you're somebody who has had a crime perpetrated against you, you know, your house has been broken into. If you know that out of a hundred police that you might call, two of them might shoot you in the head, you're probably not gonna you're probably not gonna call the police to get that crime solved, right? So as a practical exactly. matter, whoever's out there committing these crimes is now free to keep doing it because the citizenry who could be alerting this police to the problem, who could be collaborating with the police to help them solve the problem, are not making that call. Right, so two percent is a lot. Two percent is huge. <laughs> Chris Rock ha has a, a very good uh, line about this. He says, "If two percent of pilots couldn't fly planes, you wouldn't get on the plane." Right, right. <laughs> you know, you're not like, going to take that risk. I would you? drive. Right, I'm just not going <laughs> to do that. <laughs> right, we've probably uh, we've probably I've probably taken too much of your time already, but uh, I really appreciated this conversation. Um, no, it. I've enjoyed it too. And um, it's one thing that I, I had this chat uh, with uh, a couple of guys uh, into interviewed me yesterday um, and a couple of white guys. And I said, Royford, we just couldn't, you know, talk about this because, you know, we feel all guilty and like, it's just wrong and whatever. And I says, you kind of have to slightly put that to one side now. Right. Because quite simply, as many Black Lives Matters uh, activists have said, this isn't our problem, it's your problem. Mm. It's your problem. And in America, 13% of the population is African-American. So, so let's say that that 13% of the population are friends with another 13% of, of, of white American. I'm using bad math here, but you'll, you'll get my point very soon. All right, so that's 26%. And then there's like another, um, I don't know, 10% of people who are disposed towards, um, you know, good race relations. So what do we know? We're, we're at 60% of the population, right, that either don't have any contact with black folks, people of color, um, have nobody to have the conversation with. And actually, what more do you want black people to do? They mm. go in, they fight in America's wars for them, right? They do everything that's asked of them and their outcomes are always worse. Yeah. So some white on white conversations need to happen, you know? So um, let's have less, less guilt about um, having the conversation and white Americans need to have it and white Brits because we still taser people more, you know, over here than black, black men more than uh, white men and stuff. Yeah. So we're not guilt free over here. It's not a, a racial utopia by any stretch of the imagination, though parliament is very diverse. Yeah. But putting that to one side, um, white America needs to have the conversation with white America. And when you hear those racist jokes, and when you hear those, yeah, but it's not that bad 
comments, you know, white folks need to turn around and say, no. But that's we why... all know, we all know that we treat them differently, that we, that we think of them as, as a threat instinctively, at least many of us do. That has yeah. to stop. I think that's why this moment, to come back to what started this conversation, you know, you were saying you feel, you know, hopeful in some respects. I think that's why for me, this moment feels the best opportunity we've had to actually make real meaningful change on this issue is because it isn't just black folks. It is white people out there on the marches. It mm, is, yeah, you know, and totally I can diverse. tell you, you know, I, I, my family is having this conversation. My white friends are having this conversation. It is not, my company is having this conversation. You know, we've had several company meetings about Black Lives Matters as an organization, even just here in London about what is it, you know, what impact does this have and, and giving, you know, people a chance to talk about it. it. It feels like it is an everyone conversation now, not just a black people conversation. And that, that is a totally different story that is a totally different opportunity so yeah maybe maybe we could do this <laughs> <laughs> thank you for having me on it's been a pleasure we'll talk to you soon and that's it Folks, you can find me on Twitter. As always, I'm at Karen Jr. That's K-A-R-I-N-J-R on Twitter. If you've liked the podcast, please tell a friend. Um, please rate and review on your podcast player of choice. Um, please, please, I beg you, if you haven't done so already, if all of my previous begging didn't work, then let this be the week that the begging pays off. Um, go and register to vote if you're an American listening to the sound of my voice. Um, go to vote.org if you're in the States or votefromabroad.org if you're an American overseas. Um, but whatever you do, vote, vote. Um, prepare to vote online, uh, prepare to vote by absentee ballot this year um, to secure your vote and do it today. Um, get your registration, get your ballot request in, set yourself up, get organized, think about when and how you're going to make sure you get your ballot cast because we don't know what the situation is going to be at the voting booths uh, this year. As always, I should let you know this podcast is not affiliated with any other organization or entity. It is just me and I thank you for listening and hope you have a great week. <laughs>